0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so 1 Peter 5 is where you need to be, so if you want to go ahead and make sure you have your Bible out and on your lap, that would be a real service to you. Okay, if this is your first time to be at Stonegate, you have walked in on a set of sermons called Prayers. Um, where well, we're talking about prayers for the future of our church, and we're really getting to outline and clarify some of our vision and values and distinctives of our place that really make us us and make us unique, and so that you're kind of seeing an under the hood view uh, of our church and then we're giving you and really inviting you in to pray specific prayers for the future of our church in light of that vision and value or distinctive how you could be praying for us and our church family and our future in regards to it. And so last week as an example we talked about this distinctive or flavoring of Stonegate that everything begins in the family. So if you're a married man in the room as soon as you said I do you not only became a husband but, but God entrusted to you a small little church called a family and he made you the pastor of that small little church. So you're not just a husband and you're not just a dad. You're a, you're a pastor. You're a shepherd. that God is giving you that role in your family. So we talked last week about how everything begins in the family. Disciple making begins at Stonegate in the family. We want to press into our men to become really good pastors of their home. Now after last week, I had like... A half dozen ladies asked me the question, so is this week our turn? And the answer is no, this week's not going to be your turn, but we have given um, several turns to our ladies on Sunday morning, and if you just want a refresher that might be good for you, good, good for your soul, uh, you can jump back into the 1 Peter series, into chapter 3, where we spent a morning on the ladies, and, and your role in the marriage and in the family, and also back in the Ephesians series, in Ephesians 5 would also be another good place for you to go back and revisit if you would like to refresh on that. Um, but although we're not going to spend a whole morning on the ladies, I do want to address really quickly— Um, our ladies and what I would call just a big cultural thing that has happened over the last five or six months, and it's called Fifty Shades of Grey. Might have heard of it, right? And so um, with that said, I'm going to let Wikipedia give you a description of it, and then I want to take a couple of minutes just to address this with our ladies really quickly. Wikipedia describes it like this. Set largely in Seattle, it is the first installment in a trilogy that traces the deepening relationship between a college graduate, Anastasia Steele, and a young business uh, magnate, Christian Gray. And listen to this phrase. It is notable for its explicitly erotic scenes featuring elements of sexual practices involving bondage and discipline, dominance and submission. Now I want to read that one more time just so we get a really clear picture of what's going on here. It's notable for its explicitly erotic scenes featuring elements of sexual practices involving bondage and discipline, dominance and submission. This is why some people have referred to it as basically like mother pornography or mommy pornography. Fifty Shades of Grey has topped the bestseller list around the world, including the United Kingdom and the United States. The series has sold 4 million, uh, 40 million copies worldwide and is probably. Um, a lot more than that now, with book rights having been sold in 37 countries and it set the record as the fastest selling paperback of all time. I just hear that. The fastest selling paperback of all time, surpassing the Harry Potter series. Um, the the uh, Time magazine named the author of Fifty Shades of Grey as one of the 100 most influential people in the world right now. Um, It's been sold to a movie studio, so it's uh, probably sure to turn into a set of movies at some point in the U.S. Okay, now here's, at the end of the day, this is why I I think it's worth addressing and why it's not worth addressing. Kind of the, the, let me just give you the the interplay on this. I'm not addressing this because it's the fastest selling book in the history of books. I'm not addressing it because it's pornography. I'm not addressing it because it's, um, it, it puts a really dark spin on sexuality, and is pornographic in nature. I'm not addressing it because any of those reasons. I'm addressing it primarily, and I think it's worth a few minutes on Sunday morning primarily, because in the Christian culture—so this is ladies who profess to love and know Jesus—there is general acceptance of it. That's why I think it's worth addressing. And I have no idea where that lands in the room, you know, Um, but I think generally speaking, There is widespread, and it's not just like I'm reading it, but I'm celebrating it, and you should read it too, acceptance. And I think that's a problem. Um, Maybe I could couch it this way. If a guy was walking around Stonegate with a Playboy, we would address it. And I think Fifty Shades of Grey is the equivalent of a lady walking around with a Playboy. And and so um, with that, um, I I, want to just pastorally speak into this just for a second and say this to our men and to our ladies, that pornography is always poisonous to your heart. It always is. It doesn't matter if it comes as a playboy or a romance novel. It's always poisonous. And what seems at first to make you come alive, in the end actually kills you and deadens your heart. And so with that, I I just want to to as gently as I can say that it just doesn't square with the scriptures that that we would give our mind to those sort of things, right? Right? That, uh, that you would give your mind and your time to, to that sort of literature. It just doesn't square with the scriptures to set your mind on things above. That there shouldn't be even a hint of sexual immorality in our life. Um, and, and maybe even more importantly, that, that God actually offers you much better promises than Fifty Shades of Grey does. Right? That Matthew 5 says that, that the pure in heart will see God, get to know God in bigger and better ways. Um, that, that God, and I think this would be an expression of, of Matthew 5, that God is actually more satisfying than sex is. And that's a better promise for you. And so I, I just, for our ladies, I just want to pastorally address it by saying, I, I want you to avoid it. And I want you to be equipped when other ladies raise that, that issue up for you to be ready to address that. Um, uh, for what it is. And so in in light of that, today I'm going to post a uh, a topic on the city that will give you a few links to some articles about it. It'll just give you enough to know about it that would would allow you to be able to address it in conversation. And so those links are going to be up for you, and I just want to encourage you to educate yourself and to be a real encouragement to other ladies as they bring that up, and probably um, up in the context of, you should read it too, right? So I want you to be prepared for that for our ladies. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, we can actually get to the morning. Um, Okay, so we're in prayers for the future of Stonegate, and and here's where I want to go this morning. I want to clarify what I think is a really important issue for our church, maybe the most important long-term for the health of our church and for um, just the benefit and blessing of of our church family. And so let me start by saying this. In marriage, expectations are everything, aren't they? What what you roll into your marriage expecting— um, is going to determine a lot of how the first few years of your marriage goes. And so, uh, so if you can imagine the scene where a lady uh, marries a guy, and she uh, marries the guy thinking the guy should take out the trash. And the guy actually thinks that there is a magical uh, trash fairy that just somehow gets the trash out of the house without anybody doing it. Welcome to Laura and I's first year of marriage. And so um, you can just imagine the fireworks that come along though when one person expects this and the other person expects that. It just creates an environment where conflict is is natural and it's all over the place. Okay, now, and, and by the way, that's why in premarital counseling now we have like this long list that we give new couples, of you need to think through who's doing what, clarifying who's responsible for what in your marriage. So clarifying expectations are so important as you run into a marriage. Now as important as that is in marriage, it would be equally or maybe more important to have expectations clarified in the context of your church family. It's very important for for leaders in a church to have it very clear in their mind what they should and could expect biblically from church members and what church members, people who come to a church and are involved in the life of a church, have their families intertwined in a church, what they should expect from their church leaders. When this thing gets, gets haywire between church members and church leaders, you've got all sorts of conflict and heartache that come from that. And maybe to say it this way, if we're going to survive and thrive for the long haul as a church, we all have to know, embrace, and walk in what God has called us as people in our church, from leaders to deacons to, to members, what, what God has called us to be and do. We, we've all got to figure out what that is and, and walk in and embrace that if we're going to survive and thrive over the long haul. So I want to give a morning to clarifying that. What, what it means for leaders in our church, what they're responsible for, what God has called them to do, and what it is for members in a church and their role in the context of a church family. So with that said, 1 Peter 5 is where we are. Starting in verse 1 says this, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves with all humility, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if you want to think about this, this passage in some sections, here's what you've got going on. Peter starts out and he talks to church pastors or leaders or elders. And he has some things to say to them. And then he turns to church members. And he has some things to say to church members. And then he looks at pastors and their people, leaders and, and uh, the, the members in the church, and says, now all of you, I've got something to say to you. So he's got kind of these three distinct groups that he's going to talk to. So the first one is pastors or leaders in a church. And this is what he says to started out. So I exhort or encourage the elders among you. So we've got to do a little bit of groundwork on this idea of elders, what they are, what they do, th- this whole picture of what an elder is. And so I've got four questions that are going to kind of drive the explanation of that word, elders, in verse one. So here's the first one: What are elders? When we think about a local church, what what are elders? Wh- who are they? What are they? Wh- what's the role that they play? Here's you a working definition of elders. Elders are the group of rescued, qualified, and competent men who God has charged to shepherd the local church. This is what an elder is. A group of rescued, qualified, and competent men who are charged by God and commissioned by God to care for, to shepherd, to protect the local church. This is, this is what they are. This is who they are. Now, depending on your tradition, you might have grown up calling church leaders leaders Elders, pastors, you you might have grown up calling them bishops, depending on your tradition, could have been any one of those. And, And in the Bible, all three of those are used interchangeably. So it would be equally as right to call your church leaders any one of those three things. That they're used interchangeably. So in, in Titus 1, you see them used interchangeably. In Acts 20, you see them used interchangeably. Even in this passage, you've got the word elder used in verse 1. You, you've got their job or role as shepherd or pastor in verse 2. And then you've got in, in verse 2, exercising over, oversight. This is the bishop role, oversight role. So so all three of those are used interchangeably in the Bible. But here's the point. Elders are men who are godly men. That they are qualified. They have They meet certain expectations and character qualities. They're competent men. They're called by God to lead in the context of the local church. This is elders or leaders or pastors. Okay, so let me, let me give you just a couple of phrases to come around this to help in, in building out a little bit of of this idea of elders, who they are, um, this picture. So, so here's the first statement. Is elders are shepherds. Elders or shepherds? Now, I I think it's really interesting in our context of church these days, culturally, that the dominant way people think about church leaders is is kind of with a CEO, kingly sort of a a picture. And that's not the dominant biblical metaphor. That's not it. The dominant biblical metaphor to to view church leaders is as shepherds. And just as an aside, I think in light of that, it would be wise for us to keep that metaphor dominant. That that elders or pastors in a local church are intended by God to be shepherds. Now when you hear the word shepherd, I have no idea what comes to your mind, but it's important that we link in our mind with what the Bible would display and how the Bible would think about this role shepherd. That when you think of shepherd biblically, it's this unique blend of toughness and tenderness of courage and competency. It's this unique blend of all of that. I, I love, and I, when we did this uh, passage months ago now, when we were in the first, period, uh, first Peter series, I read this quote from a guy named Timothy Lanick. And he wrote a book called Shepherds After God's Heart. And he quoted G.A. Smith as saying this about shepherds biblically. He, he said it this way. And let this form and kind of mold, when you hear the word shepherd, what you think. He, he says this. On some high moor across which at night hyenas howl, when you meet him, a shepherd, he's sleepless, far sighted, weather beaten, armed, leaning on his staff, looking out over his scattered sheep, every one on his heart. You understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front of his people's history, why the people of Israel gave his name, Shepherd, that name, to their king, and made him the symbol of providence, and why Christ took him, the shepherd, as the type, the model of self-sacrifice. So this is the biblical picture of Shepherd, this combination of toughness, tenderness, courage, and competency. That 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 kind of conglomerate and mixture of things. And this is what we're to think of when we think of elder or pastor. Okay, so this is shepherd, the biblical metaphor for an elder. So number one, they're shepherds. Number two, they're in plurality. That that it's not shepherd, it's shepherds. That God has called a group of men to lead the local church, not a man to lead the local church. It's a group of men. For the protection of the church And the protection of the pastors. It's a group of qualified men. So um, let me just give you a little bit of the biblical reasoning behind that. Let me just throw out a couple of passages. And you're going to see in each one of these passages, when elders are referred to, they are in like plurality. So here's one. Acts 14, verse 23. When they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular. Elders are plural, church singular. So you've got plurality of elders. Acts 20, verse 17. This is uh, Paul sending uh, forward to the people of Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to him. Elders, plural, church in Ephesus, singular. Uh, 1 Timothy five seventeen. Let the elders who rule be uh, considered worthy of double honor. So elders, plural. James 5, 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Philippians 1. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So we've got Paul writing to a a certain church, one church, and then he says this, with the overseers, that would be a, a synonym, like bishop with elder, with the overseers, bishop, elders, pastors, and deacons. So church, singular, overseer, elder, pastors, plural. That the church of God is meant to be led in plurality. So here's what that practically means for Stonegate that our leadership structure doesn't form a pyramid with one person at the top of the pyramid. Our leadership structure has a round table at the top where gifted, qualified, and called men sit around that table with equal authority. It's a plurality of men who are called by God to lead the local church. Plurality. Okay, so they're shepherds, they're in in a plurality, and they're qualified. I need you to flip back to 1 Timothy first Timothy chapter 3 and I want to read through with you the qualifications of an elder or a pastor in a church first Timothy 3 and and by the way as we talk about qualifications can we all agree that we all want people to be qualified for important roles right we all want that like if, if you're about to go under the knife you're about to have surgery done you don't want the good old boy who dissected a cat once in the ninth grade to do the cutting on you do you you don't want that. You want a qualified man to do that or a qualified lady to do that. You want them to know what they're doing before they start cutting on you, right? We all agree. Okay, now how much more true would that be in the context of the local church? That you want qualified people that are, that are in on that. So 1 Timothy 3 gives us a good framework to think about qualifications, 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. This is Paul talking here. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseers, this is clue number one, qualification number one. They need to aspire to it. That, that if you don't aspire to it, you're going to die doing it. That God has to put this deep inside of the heart of a person and there's got to be something in them s- stirred up where they want to shepherd a local church. So first quality is, qualification is aspiration. Then you've got this next phrase. So the, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so um, welcome to the controversy, especially in our culture that doesn't like this at all. But here's how we would say this, that, that elders, it's a plurality of qualified men. This is the one role that would be restricted to only men that we would see in the local church. And just as a quick uh, primer on this, we could essentially spend the whole morning here, and I, I don't want to do that, but let me just say this. That the same pattern that we see in the home in 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 5 of authority and submission in the context of the home is reflected in the church. That same pattern in the home is to be the same pattern you see exhibited in the local church. And and so that same pattern of godly self-sacrifice from men in the home— and, and followership from the wife is the same thing that we would want in the context of the church. Qualified men willing to lay down their life for the bride, the church. And, and then you have the followership. And so the same pattern in the home is carried over to the church. Now, if you have a lot of other questions about that, we have a guy on staff. His name is Dan Hutchins. You can email him all the questions you have. His email is dan at stonegate He'd love to take them all. And so... Uh, Yeah, okay, now to the ladies, let me just say this final word. The the roadway for women to run in great, God-honoring, fulfilling ministry is very wide at Stonegate. We want every one of our ladies that aspire to carry ministry burden for them to be able to do that with us. And so if that's you, we just want you to know that we want to be great resources and equippers and be a great help to to do what God has called you to do. So our roadway is very wide for you to run in a variety of things around our church to do. Okay, so second thing it says he. And then in verse two, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. That's a junk drawer category. It's saying that this guy can't have like a major character defect. That there's got to be measurable growth in his life. He can't be on the front end of his sanctification. He's got to be down the road in his Christ-likeness. So, so it's this junk drawer above reproach. And then it goes on here. The husband of one wife. In other words, he's got to be a one-woman sort of a man. Eyes for one woman, and that one woman is his wife, right? So he's a one woman, or a, the husband of one wife. The, the next couple of phrases here. It says, sober-minded self-controlled and respectable and typically when we come to those qualifications I talk about it like this when you hear that man's name mentioned you don't say this that guy you mean that guy you're talking about that one for that role you don't think of it like that when you hear his name mentioned in the context of church leadership or pastoring you think this why wouldn't it be that guy Why wouldn't it be? Of course, if if we're going to have a group of guys leading our church, that would be one of the guys I would love to see that with. Your response would be that. He's respectable. You, You would think of him in those terms. Comes down here, hospitable. In other words, his life is open to people, especially people who don't know Jesus. He's actually living on mission in that way. So he's hospitable. He's able to teach. And that doesn't mean he's got to be able to stand up and give like a great 45-minute monologue and be a great preacher. It means he's got to open, be able to open up the Bible, navigate it really well, and to be able to apply the gospel to the wounds of people's hearts. That's what he's got to be able to do. Um, It goes on, verse 3, not a drunkard. And really this would be an allusion to any sort of addiction-oriented people, right? And so it's not just an alcohol thing, being addicted to alcohol. You can be addicted to food. You can be addicted to a video game. You can be addicted to the cowboys. You can be addicted to a million different things, right? And so it's saying that that he's not prone to addictions in general. Um, So not a drunkard, not violent. In other words, he's got some sort of measurable control on his anger, that, that as soon as a person crosses him, he's not trying to get that guy into a, an octagon to beat his brains in, right? That he's got some sort of a measurable control, self-control when it comes to anger. It goes on, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Isn't it interesting that pastoring in the church— You qualify yourself for that by you actually pastoring well in the home. Pastoring in the home is how you qualify yourself for pastoring in the church. Um, Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, eldership is not a place for you to prove your potential. It's a place for those who have already proven their potential. Verse seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let me just say uh, real quickly from a 30,000 foot level, a couple of observations about these qualifications. Number one, they simply describe maturity as a Christian. Like the the undergirding inference and implication kind of that that undergirds all of these qualifications is Paul's assumption that if you're a good Christian, you're going to be a good pastor. And that needs to be said in our day where there's a lot of pastors who really aren't very good Christians. That Paul has an assumption, you're a good Christian, you're going to be a good pastor. Another um, 30,000 foot level observation. These qualifications are tied less to, to a person's work in the church and more to a guy's work in his home. In other words, let me just say this again, that the testing ground, the the way you prove that that you're capable of leading in a church and pastoring in a church is the way that you lead and pastor in your home. This This is the proving ground, the testing ground. What qualifies you to be an elder or a pastor of a church is you being an elder and a pastor in your home. This is where it starts. And then number three. All of these qualifications deal at the heart with character, which takes a lot of time to test. You don't test character in a moment, overnight, in a day. You test character over a long period of time. Okay, now with that being said, let me just stop and give you an update on where we as Stonegate Church are in regards to eldership here. Right now, we're still not functioning in a plurality of elders. We've got one elder right now, and that's me. That's it for now. And that's not good. I, I, don't, I don't like that. I'm praying for something different than that. But this is where we are currently. And so here's the history and just to kind of catch you up and to, to fill you in. When we started Stonegate, my prayer and hope was that within three years, we would have our group of qualified, competent, rescued men eldering in our church. So it was a three-year goal. And the reason that it was a three-year goal is because of this. It takes time to test calling and character. Amen? There is something worse than having a plurality of elders right now at Stonegate, and that's having the wrong ones. That's disaster for our church, right? And so it's a three-year goal to get the right men in place. And so our hope and our prayer has been that God would put it in the heart of of men in our place to want to pastor here, that that God would give them a mantle and a voice and, and start making them into that. And that we would have the wisdom to recognize who those people are. And, and then we could come beside those men and equip them and train them. And, uh, and help resource them to become the sort of pastors that we would want and need for our church family. And so at the beginning of this year, after about two and a half years, we felt like God had, had, had given, put it in the heart of a few of our men. And, and we have seen that. God's given them a voice. And so we started at the beginning of 2012 training uh, a group of men here to be good elders for our church family. So we're about nine months into a 12-month training period for them where we're testing calling, character, all those things. We're trying to give them the nuances they need of eldering and pastoring so that they can actually do a good job. And there's a lot to that. When you start talking about pastoring our church, there's a lot that that goes into making good pastors for you. And so we have about three or four months left of that. And then we hope that at the beginning of next year, we'll be able to present a group of men to you and uh, we're going to give you a 30 to 45 days for you to affirm or to push back on these men. We want them fully vetted. So if you know something about any one of them that we don't know we, that would disqualify them, we, we want to know that because we want qualified men in our place. And so we'll give you 30 to 45 days to, uh, to get to know them, to affirm, to push back, um, and to approve them. And then uh, we hope to in, Jan- in uh, February, maybe early March of next year, to be able to install our first set of like elders that are our local church family elders here. And so I'm excited for that. I can't wait for that. I think we've got some men that um, are going to do a wonderful job in, in pastoring our church. Now and in, in one, one other caveat, one other angle to address here. Knowing that we had a three to three and a half year span where we would not have elders, I just want you to hear me say this, that I'm doing everything I can not to be a CEO or a king here. Everything I can to keep the, the, the last table round at the end of the day. And so what we did from day one to help give us a plurality um, of people around the last table was we uh, got three other pastors to agree to be an external board for us to essentially function as external elders. So it's me and three other people that are eldering our church right now. They just don't live here. They're not, they're pastor other churches too. And so every big decision we make around our place, they can either approve, revise, or reject. But ultimately, this table is still round with those guys sitting at it. So this is kind of currently where we are, and we'd love to invite you into praying for our church in regards to that over the next few months. So this is what elders are. Second question is, what do elders do? What do they do? And let me just give you three quick things that elders do. And dads, especially in light of last week pastoring in the home, this would be a really good grid to lay over your own life as you think of pastoring in your home. So here's what elders do. Number one, elders are shepherds. They lead the sheep. They lead. They are called by God to lead. So just like a shepherd would be charged with the the job of making sure he is thinking forward about his flock, where they're going to be this year, next year, 10 years down the road, like a shepherd would have to do that. In the same way, a shepherd or an elder or a pastor of a local church is charged by God with leadership. To get a preferred picture of the future and call his people toward it. To think about one year down the road, three years down the road, five years down the road, ten years down the road, where the church needs to be, and then how to get his people in alignment with that, to to pull them toward that and to lead them toward that. So leadership is a huge part of the pastoral role, the shepherding role. Here's the second piece of that. Is shepherds feed the sheep. So just like a shepherd would be charged with the task of making sure his sheep actually get food, so a pastor or an elder of a local church is charged with making sure his people, his sheep, get the feet on God's word. Okay, so this is the preaching component, the, the profiting component of pastoring and eldering. That, that pastors are charged with the job of week in, week out, presenting Jesus to his people. Opening up the scriptures and saying what the Bible says to his people. Presenting the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and all the implications to our people's lives today, 2,000 years later. So so this is the feeding component of it. And then number three, shepherds care, care for and protect the sheep. So there is a pastoral care component where if you think about a shepherd, one of his jobs would be to fend off wolves. To kill wolves, to protect the flock from wolves, and to care for his sheep. To know his sheep. To to take care of, to make sure that they are personally cared for. Okay, now in the same way, an elder or a pastor would be charged with the protection and care for his sheep. In Acts 20 verse 29, um, God tells us really clearly that there's going to be wolves that come into churches. Did you know that? Wolves that come into churches with with the specific purpose of killing and maiming sheep. That's going to happen here. And if you want to know how to spot a wolf, here's how you know. They're not about leading people to Jesus, but about leading people to themselves. And shepherds and elders, they have to have enough wisdom to know, is that person an immature sheep that needs to be loved and cared for? Or is that person a wolf that needs to be shot? A pastor has has to have enough wisdom to know that. I mean, you you know that you can't feed a wolf, right? Because all you're doing is letting them like, have some strength to kill your sheep. That you've got to, you've got to shoot wolves. And sometimes that's painful. Sometimes that's hard. But th- this is the job of eldering in the context of a church. You've got to have that sort of wisdom. Now let me tie all three of these together really quickly. It takes all three of those to be a good pastor. Leading well, feeding well, and shepherding and protecting, caring for it well. All three of those. See, I, I And I think that there's like this this missing link that a lot of pastors have because a lot of pastors will say this, well, I'm a great preacher though. You can be a great preacher and a terrible pastor. Some would say I'm a phenomenal leader. I mean, I could lead anything, anywhere. You can be a great leader and a terrible pastor. See, pastoring requires not only that you lead well, but you feed well and you care for it well. All three of those things. That, that is what elders do. Lead, feed, care for, and protect. Number three, how do elders do it? And look at 1 Peter 5 here. It's going to answer the question, how do leaders, how do pastors, how do elders go about doing what God has called them to do in the local church? And by the way, I think that there is a reason that, that leadership in general is viewed with pessimism and skepticism, because most leaders don't do it in the right way. Right? And so 1 Peter is going to help us here. How do elders go about doing what God has called them to do? Verse 2, do you see it? Not under compulsion, but willingly. In other words, this can't be something you're coerced to do. You can't coerce a person to be a good pastor. This is a calling issue. See, either he has got to be called by God to do this, and he wants to do it, or he should not do it. Like, this is why 1 Timothy 3 talks about aspiration— that part of God calling a man to lead and pastor a church is God putting it in his heart, a desire for it. So not under compulsion, but willingly. And then he says this in verse 2. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Okay, so in 1 Timothy five seventeen, Paul makes it clear that pastors should be paid. So he, he gets that out of the way, but then first Peter, Peter is here offering kind of a balancing piece to this, that pastors should not be motivated by money. It is sinful for a pastor's motive to be money. I mean, first of all, he's in the wrong profession if that's his motive, but second of all, it's sinful for a pastor to be motivated by that. That it's calling, not compensation, that has to be the motive. See, there's, two, there's one of two ways that a pastor can relate to you. Here's way number one. Uh, way number one is pastors can use their pulpit and their people to build their own personal kingdom. That's way number one. And I think that warning needs to be sounded because I think there's a lot of pastors who do that. That's that's one way a pastor can relate to you. Here's another way a pastor can relate to you. They can be people who give their life away to you with the hope of building God's kingdom. So so one is, I'm going to use pulpit and people to build my kingdom. The other is, I'm going to give away to people, give my life away to people so that we can build God's kingdom. And can I just tell you, this is my hope for our elders here and our leaders here, that they will be humble men who seek to give their life away to our church family. Not driven by money, but by a calling that God has put in their heart. So not, not for shameful gain, but, but eagerly. And then he says this, not domineering. Look at verse 3, not domineering, but being examples. But being examples. That there are to be people who lead by example. And this is really the tension, isn't it, of most leadership situations? that, That God has given you a preferred picture of the future, and you're trying to call people toward it, but you're trying to do that in a way that's actually profitable and good to them, not manipulative and domineering to them. I mean, this is a tension that I think most leaders feel on some level. That there were to be people who lead by example, not domineering, not bullying, not coercive, not manipulative. Now, when we talked about this passage back uh, several months ago when we were going through 1 Peter, um, I used the illustration that I read about a, a tour group in Israel that uh, that were in a bus and they're going down the road. And the tour guide was talking to them about how shepherds in Israel always lead from the front, never from the back. So it's always from the front modeling and showing what, what they want done. Never from the back with a whip just— laying into the sheep trying to get them to go where they want them to go and about that time the, the people in the bus looked over and they were like oh like that guy huh and, and they look over and they see this guy that's behind the sheep just wearing the sheep out with a whip I mean he's just letting them have it and so they stop the bus the tour guide runs over to the guy and talks to him for a minute he comes back onto the bus with kind of a grin on his face And, you know, kind of interesting to see what the guy's about to say. You know, everyone's listening intently as he says this. Well, ironically, that's not a shepherd. That was a butcher. (laughs) Okay, now I want you to see. It just took a, a few people a little bit longer to get that for some reason. Okay, so I want you to see this in the context of a church, though. That pastors are not meant to be behind their people with a whip, trying to get their people to do what they want them to do. They're not supposed to be domineering and bullying in that sense. They are to be shepherds who are out in front of sheep modeling what needs to be done. Leading from the front. So, so this is how they're to go about doing it. And then why do they do it? Look at verse 4. Why do elders do what they do? Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here's why shepherds do it. Because elders and pastors know that there's this dominant theme in the Bible that goes like this. This future orientation of the Bible that goes like this. What you can expect now in life is, is suffering now, glory later. A cross now, a crown later. That the reason and the motive for, for shepherds to do what they do is for the glory of God and the good of people. That's, that's why. That they actually have a view to eternity and what's in stake for every person in their church. And for themselves. That there, there is stuff at stake down the road for every one of us. Okay, now Peter is about to turn the spotlight and he's about to address you, people who make up a church, church church members. And he says this in verse 5a Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders. So I think uh, here would be the command of the passage, just to say it clearly. It would be on the screen for you. Here's the command Peter's looking at church members and he is saying this Subject yourselves to your pastors. That's what he's saying. Okay, now let me take a, uh, a quick second and say this. This feels kind of weird for me to teach. Uh, it, 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 I'm essentially saying, okay, so God has called me and a group of men to lead, and now I'm telling you, now you need to hear what God tells you to— yeah, I mean, it just feels a little bit awkward to me, but, but let me tell you why I, I'm going to push through it and, and tell you what I think the Bible's saying here. Because I actually think the commands are, of God are for your good. That when we know, live in, and embrace the commands of God, it leads to joy for you and good for you. And so as weird as it is for me about to say some of the things I'm about to say, I think you need to hear them, and it's going to be a blessing and a joy for you if you'll live in them. And so I want to be faithful to say them. Amen? Okay. So with that said, let let me just try to clarify what what I think Peter is saying here. When he says, subject yourselves to your pastors, I, I think clarify this is what the command means that submission is a joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. It's a joyful willingness. It's not begrudging. It's a joyful willingness to do that. A joyful willingness to follow the, the authority that God has placed over you. So it's just recognizing that in the church, God has placed authority over you, elders, pastors, bishops, whatever you want to call them. He's placed those, that authority over you. And that's a really good thing. It's great for all of us me included, to be under authority, to have a group of men that I'm still under their authority. It's good for all of us to recognize that. And, and what submission is, is it a joyful willingness to follow that. Okay, now let me caveat this by saying uh, a couple of things about submission. Just like when we talk about this in the context of the home, and no, there's boundaries around submission. Just like a wife should never follow her husband into sin, you should never follow a pastor into sin. Just like the husband does not replace Jesus in the home, pastors do not replace Jesus for people. So those boundaries exist both in the home and in the church. But it doesn't negate the fact that that God is calling us to a joyful and willing subjection. A joyful and like just a willingness to live under that God-ordained authority in our life. And so let me try to give you a few things as to what it would look like for this to be carried out in your life. What this command carried out looks like, and let me just run through a couple of them and we'll, we'll wrap up here. Number one, this command carried out in your life would look like this. Number one, that you would eventually officially join a church, that that you would, you would join your life up into that officially, you would get under the authority of a church. And let, let me throw this, this verse out on the screen for you, that I think does a good job of illustrating the dance between pastors and people in a church, in the context of a church. This is Hebrews thirteen seventeen. says this. Talking, this would be to members here first. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are, are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account for you. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. In other words, the way you submit should make it a joy for people to be able to lead you. Let them do this uh, with joy and not with groaning, for uh, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, okay, now look at the first part of this verse. He says, on a church member level, here's what you're responsible for. To obey and submit, to get under authority, to be joyfully and willingly under the authority that God has placed over you. And for a leader, for elders and pastors, I read this verse and I tremble. Because I'm reading that and I'm, I'm hearing this, that God is going to hold me accountable for the people that, that put themselves under my authority here and under the plurality of leaders that, that lead our church under their authority. That God's going to hold that group of people responsible for you. In other words, th- them caring, them feeding, them protecting, them doing all of those things, leading well. Like God's going to hold me accountable for that. I'm going to stand before God one day and give a response for how I stewarded you. So, so, see, this is the dance of of what membership is. Membership is essentially an official recognition of Hebrews 13, 17. For, For pastors, it's an official and willing recognition that I'm looking at you as the people God is holding me accountable for. See, God is not holding me accountable for every Christian, but a certain crew of Christians that are going to subject themselves to our leadership here. And then on the other side, from a membership level, it's a joyful and willing recognition that I am going to get under the authority of this group of leaders. You're not called to be under every church's leadership. But see, this passage is saying you get under a certain set of leadership and then you joyfully and willingly rest under that and submit to that. See, this is the dance. This is what covenant membership is. All it is is an official recognition. I'm under their authority and they are going to be held accountable by God for me. This is what church membership is. And so now let me just address this just with us in the room. If you've been coming like months, years, and and you're not a member, can I just gently encourage you to jump in? It's an official recognition that I'm, we as elders will be held accountable for you and who exactly it is that you're submitting yourself to. It's just an official recognition of that. And the sooner you can do that, the better off you'll be and will be. So number two. So how can we carry this command out? Number one. We officially join a church family. Number two is you personally own the mission. You personally own it. There is a difference between owning and renting, isn't there? So let's just think about this in terms of an apartment and a house. If you've ever lived in an apartment, chances are you didn't paint a wall. Chances are you didn't upgrade the door. Chances are you didn't spend several thousand dollars putting in some new cabinetry. Now, why wouldn't you do that? because you don't own it. Somebody else owns it. If something breaks and you're in an apartment, what do you do? You call someone else to come and fix it. You've got a landlord to do all of those things. Now, I think that that is probably an apt picture for how too many people view the church. Pastors and leaders are really just landlords, and and all people are is renting the mission from them. So they don't own it. See, when you own it, it means that, like, it's yours. You have taken possession of that. As much as it grips them, it grips you. See, when you own your house, you'll put money into it. When you own your house, you're going to give it some TLC. When you own your house, you're going to try to continually upgrade things in it. See, this is the difference between owning and renting. So, so let me just maybe throw it out this way. When we talk about extending the glory of God by making disciples— the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one thing for you to agree with that, and it's a much different thing for you to actually own that. See, mental agreement is, yeah, that sounds great. A church should really be doing that. Y'all go get them. Owning that is, yeah, a church should be doing that. Like, this is what God has called us to do, and we should go get them. See, there's a difference when you say, you go get them, and we go get them. See, owning says, we're going to get them. We're carrying this out. As much as you own that mission, I own that mission. As much as this is the driving beat of the church, it's the driving beat of my life. See, it's one thing for us to say that we should all be missionaries in our neighborhood. It's one thing to say that and then say, now, y'all go do that. And it's another thing to say, no, we go do that. We're going to be good missionaries in our neighborhood. Like, we're actually going to reorient our life around our neighborhood and how to be good missionaries to our neighborhood. We're actually going to have gospel conversations. Like, we're in for that. See, one is renting it. One is owning it. You go do it is a rental. We go do it is owning it. It's one thing for us to talk about church planting, adoption, and orphan care. It's one thing to rent that. And it's another thing to say this, if this is where my church is going, this is where I am going. If we're about making disciples, I am going to be about making disciples in my family, in my neighborhood. I'm going to be about making and maturing disciples. So let me just ask you the question. Do you feel like you've owned the mission? That you've owned it? That you're not on rental? That it's not you guys go charge the gates and and we'll be cheering you on? But like we're in this together. Like you own that thing. I mean, do you feel that way? So I think part of what this command would, would entail in our life is we actually start owning the mission. Number three is you heed your leader's biblical instruction. That you heed their biblical instruction. In other words, that you take the teaching that you get from the Bible and you seek to apply it to your life. To press it down over you. Now, if we're just going to talk practical kind of nuances of this, you know where that starts? Actually going to bed at a decent hour on Saturday night. Can you imagine what it would do if you woke up an hour earlier than you normally do on Sunday morning and you prayed and you read the Bible for a few minutes before you just started your day? I'm just out on a limb here thinking that it would probably position you much better to hear from God on a Sunday morning. And then it's, well, and this is going to be a novel idea, but it's actually showing up on time. I know it's crazy, kind of a lost art out there, actually showing up on time, right? And and then it's you taking the teaching that you get from the Bible, and you saying, what does that look like for me to live in that? Let let me marinate under this. Let me think about this. Let me get in good community where we can work this out together. And and it's you seeking to apply these things to your life. You living in these things. Not just hearing things that you agree with, but actually seeking to live in the things that you hear. So it's heeding your your leader's biblical instruction. Number four, it's you plugging into various equipping pathways. So in other words, it's you you plugging your life in and intertwining your life with with the people of Stonegate. So our primary equipping pathway, if you're an adult in the room, is our home groups. It's the primary way that we make and mature disciples. And so if you're not in a home group, that's going to be a problem. That's a problem. Because you are outside of our primary pathway to to make good disciples at our place. And, And so if this is you, and you've been coming for a long period of time and you're not in a home group, it probably means you still, the, you still view the church more in consumer terms than you do in contributor terms. And, and so just as gently as I can tell you, if you've been coming for a while and you're not in a home group, jump in one like ASAP. For your good and the good of our church family, you need to jump into those. It's an equipping pathway and a great means of grace for you to grow you. And number five, last one, is that you recognize your need for spiritual authority. Do you know how the Bible refers to you and I? If you're a Christian in the room, do you know how it refers to us? Sheep. And that's not overly flattering. Sheep are not smart. You know that? I mean, the Bible's saying something about us when it says we're sheep. It, sheep aren't smart, they get themselves into troubles they, that they can't get themselves out of, they are prone to wonder. This is, this is a sheep. And as sheep, me and you, we all need people like under shepherds to pastor us. See, this is why a plurality of pastors is so important because pastors, under shepherds are still sheep too. And they need men, pastors to pastor them. We all need that. Spiritual authority in your life is one of the greatest blessings that God has given you. And if you don't recognize your need for pastors in your life, it's because of one of two reasons. Either you are not very self-aware about how prone to wonder you really are, or you're just really prideful and rebellious. But it's one of the two. Because those things, we, we need them. We, we all need good spiritual authority in our life to help us. We need to seek counsel from our spiritual authority, right? I mean, not because they want to control you, but because your pastor's here, they really do care for you. Like they really do love you and want God's best for you. And want you to see and take in the, the full counsel of God's word into how you're making decisions about life. So so it's recognizing your need for spiritual authority and seeking to make sure you're living in it and under it. Okay, now last part of this, and then then we're done here. In verse five, the second part, Peter says this. He's talking to all of us now, leaders, members, the whole shebang. And he says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we're going to survive and thrive as a church family here, it's going to require great leadership and great followership. And if we're going to have great leadership and great followership at Stonegate, you know what that's going to require from you and I? Humility. Great humility. To just say it really negatively. If you want to know one of the things that could blow up our church in a matter of moments, it's pride. It's prideful leaders who want to domineer and bully. And it's prideful people who want to rebel and lead a mutiny. Right? So it could rip our church apart in just a matter of moments. This is why we are all in great, I mean, just desperate need for God to give us a heavy dose of humility around here. And do you know the only way to be humble people? You know, you know, only way? If we're going to be humble people, you know that's going to require a whole lot of Jesus. It's going to require us all to be really near to Jesus. It's going to require all of us to be really near to the cross. It's going to require our leaders to actually be led by Jesus, humbly led by Jesus. It's going to actually require all of our members to be humbly led by Jesus. It's going to require a lot of Jesus around here. So in light of all that, I want to invite you to pray this for the future of our church. Here's the prayer. In light of the importance of leadership and followership in a church— clarifying the roles, all of that. Here's the prayer. Father, give our church humble pastors, great, humble, qualified, competent pastors, and fill our church with great, God-honoring, humble members. Amen? That, That we would have a church full of both of those, Good, qualified, competent men called by God to lead a church and and that we would have a church full of members who personalize and own the mission, seeking to carry it out, who want to follow in a God-honoring, humble way. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to allow the Spirit of God to just... Press in what would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that would be um, not helpful for you. And I really want to invite you to be praying for our church that God would give us great humble pastors. That God would put to death pride in them and arrogance in them. And God would give us shepherds who want to lead, feed, and protect God's church for His glory and God's good. And I just want to give you a second to pray for your own heart. That along the way, that God would just continue to clarify for you and to call you towards what it would look like to be a great member who owns the mission, who is living the mission, who it's not a, it's not a, a mission on rental, but it is you personally saying, it is mine. It's not a, you guys go do it. It is, let's go do it. You'd personalize that. You'd be in the equipping pathways. And there's going to be some of you men in the room that God is going to put in you an aspiration for eldership. And you need to make sure you let us know that so we can help you in that. But more than, than I want, um, more, more than I want, even for our members to, to be good members of a church, our church, here's my prayer. Really, this is probably more for the, the guys that are kicking the tires in the room. If you're an unbeliever in the room, here would be my hope for you is that God would save you and make you a part of his church. That you'd be a part of his bride, his family. And here's the good news of the gospel, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that God promises that if you'll cry out to him right now in this moment, say, God, here's my life, will you save me? That God is more than willing to rescue you, adopt you into his family, put you inside of his church. So if that's you this morning, there there would not be a better thing that you could ever do in your life than that right there. And so God, I want to pray for our church family. God, I want to pray for humble pastors, God-honoring pastors, people-loving pastors who who would lead people, care for people, feed our people well. And God, I want to pray for our church and our members that make up our church, God, that that you would put it deep in their heart to want to be humble followers, people who own the mission, people people who are carrying the mission out. And God, I want to pray for great faithfulness and great fruitfulness for both of those two categories. That, That Rather than clashing, there would be great community between those two. So God, I pray for great help there. And God as we, as we finish our day-to-day by responding in song to you, God, I pray that, that the words that flow from our lips would be an expression of our heart, that, that our hearts would, would desire you and want you, that we would have great affection for you, and that that would spill its way up out of our mouth into corporate worship this morning. So God, will you help us in that? It's in your good name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.